Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top headlines. Classified files from Biden's term as vice president are found in a private office. Myanmar jails 112 Rohingya. Donors pledge $9 billion in flood relief for Pakistan. NATO says it hasn't ruled out arming Ukraine with modern battle tanks. A watchdog asks the U.S. government to investigate George Santos. The U.N. Security Council votes to extend cross-border aid to northwest Syria. The U.S. Navy seizes Iranian assault rifles bound for Yemen. A historic U.K. rocket mission fails. A U.S. safety agency considers banning gas stoves. And a U.N. report finds the ozone layer could heal by 2066. In our first story, classified files from Biden's vice presidency term are found at a private office. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post, One America, CNN, and The Guardian. The White House confirmed Monday that classified documents from when Biden was vice president were discovered by his attorneys in an office at his Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement think tank in Washington. The Penn-Biden Center, an affiliate of the University of Pennsylvania, was founded in 2018 during Biden's time as an honorary professor from 2017 to 2019, for which he was compensated $1 million by the school. The attorneys uncovered the documents while preparing to vacate the office on November 2nd. White House Special Counsel Richard Sobel said that files are now appropriately in the possession of the National Archives, as required under the Presidential Records Act. The classified materials include some top-secret files designated sensitive, compartmented information, which is used for highly sensitive information obtained from intelligence sources. John Lausch, Jr., a U.S. attorney from Chicago, is now investigating the matter. This comes as the U.S. Department of Justice is investigating former President Trump's unauthorized retention of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. News of the discovery of Biden's documents sparked criticism by the GOP. This also comes after Biden in September called Trump totally irresponsible for bringing classified materials to his private residence. However, Biden's attorneys suggested that, in contrast, they turned over the materials and notified authorities as soon as they were discovered. All right. Believe it or not, we got some political narratives on this story. The Democratic narrative comes from Newsweek. There's a big difference between the Trump and Biden cases. Trump violated the law by possessing classified papers and attempting to cover up his actions. The former president is facing a serious investigation because he knowingly held sensitive information and actively worked to keep it from the archives. Biden did neither of those things. Thus, GOP claims of Biden hypocrisy are unfounded. Where there's a Democratic, of course, there's a Republican narrative, and this comes from Town Hall. The only important difference between the two cases is that Biden was vice president when he took the documents to his private office and vice presidents don't have the same declassification powers as presidents. It will be interesting to see whether the DOJ sends teams to raid Biden's residences as they did with Trump, or if there continues to be a double standard. Whether this was done out of malice or ignorance, or whether it matters or if it doesn't, 
I can only imagine how mad Biden must have been when he found out about this because he knows what this means. He's never going to hear the end of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it kind of makes you wonder going back, you know, decades and decades, how many how many ex-presidents just have classified documents, top security, uh, just hanging out in their office at I, home in I their mean, living room? My office has papers all over the place. If I was president a couple of years ago, I would have some papers. and I found all kinds of stuff that I didn't even know I had anymore, like in strict personal insurance papers and things like that. Um, I found a Chipotle gift card that was printed <laughs> out. So, you know, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's not all bad. Myanmar jails 112 Rohingya. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Independent, France 24, Radio Free Asia, Mizima, and The Guardian. Myanmar state media reported on Tuesday that a court in the southern city of Bogal sentenced 112 Rohingya to jail, including a dozen children, for traveling without any official documents. While the adults received five-year prison sentences, five children under 13 were sentenced to two years in jail, and seven children above 13 were given a three-year prison term. The children were reportedly transferred to a youth training school near commercial hub Yangon on January 8th, two days after sentences were delivered, but no further details were given. This comes after the group, comprised of people that reportedly left refugee camps in Bangladesh and Myanmar's Rakhine state, was arrested on December 20th as they were reportedly waiting near an island off Bogal for other boats to take them to shore, from where they would have set sail for Malaysia. The risky journey from refugee camps in Bangladesh and Myanmar to reach Muslim-majority Indonesia and Malaysia is believed to have been taken last year by more than 2,000 Rohingya, who are denied citizenship in Myanmar and often require permission to travel. Over 700,000 Rohingya reportedly fled Myanmar to Bangladesh following the 2017 military crackdown and allegedly faced dire conditions in refugee camps. Those still in Myanmar are in the middle of fighting between the military junta and the Arakan army, a militant group based in the Rakhine state. Well, we've got several spins on this sad story. The pro-establishment narrative is written by Rohingya Kabor. This is the latest example of the endless injustice and brutality to which the Rohingya have been subjected by Myanmar's government in recent years, which includes human rights abuses, unfair imprisonment, and inhumane detention camps. And we have an establishment critical narrative from the global new light of Myanmar. This action was fully lawful and taken in accordance with Myanmar's legally binding regulations. As the 112 undocumented Bengalis entered the country illegally via motorboat, they were in turn duly arrested. Like, no one wants to take this horrible trip. It's going to be horrible. You might die or be arrested. So then you think right. about how bad is it where they are to make that worth it? Must be, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, the for them to make that decision, bad. It's it can't get much worse. Yeah. Ugh. Now for news in Pakistan, donors pledge $9 billion for flood relief. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Express Tribune, Le Monde, The Hindu, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. On Monday, private donors and financial institutions pledged more than $9 billion to help Pakistan recover from last year's devastating floods. 
Major donors reportedly included the Islamic Development Bank with $4.2 billion, World Bank with $2 billion, the Asian Development Bank with $1.5 billion, and Saudi Arabia with $1 billion. The international assistance is expected to cover over half of the $16.3 billion Pakistan requested over the next three years to recover from the disaster and support the country's ability to withstand future climate shocks. Last fall, melting glaciers and record monsoon rains triggered a catastrophic flood that left one-third of the country underwater. The disaster displaced over 33 million people, destroyed more than 2 million houses, killed around 1,700 people, and caused economic damages to the tune of $40 billion. The aid comes after the United Nations COP27 climate summit in Egypt in November 2022 agreed to set up a fund called Loss and Damage to help developing countries cope with the extreme weather events caused by global warming. In August 2022, Pakistan also secured a $1.1 billion loan from the IMF to bring its economy, racked by soaring inflation and political upheaval, back on track. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story coming from Geneva Solutions. Although Pakistan is responsible for less than 1% of global greenhouse emissions, it is deeply impacted by climate-induced disasters. Last year's floods were a focus at COP27, where Pakistan led developing nations in the push to set up the Loss and Damages Fund for Climate Reparations. The Geneva Conference was a test case of how willing developed countries are to assist developing countries. The West fortunately passed the test with flying colors. And the establishment critical narrative is provided by The Diplomat. Being reliant on ad hoc aid from the international community and its institutions is not enough for Pakistan. Floods affect about 715,000 residents annually, and by 2030, the number is projected to reach 2.7 million. The total financial loss of these floods projects to almost 1% of Islamabad's gross domestic product annually. Pakistan must take its climate issues into its own hands, working on early warning systems and water policies. But it deserves more than aid. It deserves full climate reparations. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change during the 21st century will be at least 8.84% of world GDP. Can you imagine a third of our country underwater? Well, it depends on which third. And in day 321 of the fighting in Ukraine, NATO's chief does not rule out arming Ukraine with modern battle tanks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, DW, CNBC, Newsweek, and Reuters. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg has reportedly said that supplying Western tanks to Ukraine such as the German Leopard or American Abrams, has not been ruled out as a course of action. Stoltenberg also stated that an increase of arms shipments is the road to peace for the Ukrainians. Stoltenberg's remarks coincided with the formal signing of a joint declaration by NATO and the EU, committing them to using their partnership to counter Russia's war on Ukraine and to boost security in the broader Euro-Atlantic region. Meanwhile, Russia has reportedly made tactical advances near Bakhmut and is close to capturing Solodar, 
a small but strategically significant salt mining town in eastern Ukraine, the UK's defense ministry claimed on Tuesday. In his nightly video address on Monday, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, conceded that Solodar was completely destroyed, noting that the town is covered with the corpses of the occupiers and scars from the strikes. Elsewhere, Russia's defense ministry admitted a Russian warship, armed with hypersonic cruise weapons, conducted an air defense exercise in the Norwegian Sea to repel the means of an air attack of a simulated enemy. Meanwhile, Russia's defense chief, Sergei Shoigu, vowed to continue to develop the country's nuclear triad and maintain its combat readiness in 2023 to guarantee Russia's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Thank you for that update, Scott. We'll start the spins with an anti-Russia narrative from the Washington Post. As the war shifts to the strategically important Donbas region of Donetsk, the U.S. and its allies need to continue to do everything in their power to arm Ukraine with all the weapons they need. Doing so is the only way to push Putin's forces back, as was done in Kyiv. We've got a pro-Russia narrative from Republic World. As stated by Putin, the whole purpose of the war was never to invade Kyiv, but to liberate the ethnically Russian people of Donetsk and Luhansk, who have been subjected to systematic killing by Ukrainian forces for not recognizing the 2014 coup in Kyiv. And there's an establishment critical narrative from anti-war. More weapons packages will make little difference in the outcome of the war. The U.S. has been meddling in Ukraine since the end of the Cold War. And what we're witnessing is a geopolitical Ponzi scheme to benefit those aligned with the military-industrial complex. War is a lucrative racket. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's an 81% chance that Ukraine will receive a modern main battle tank from a NATO country before 2024. A watchdog asks the U.S. government to investigate George Santos. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, CBS, and CNBC. On Monday, the Campaign Legal Center, or CLC, a campaign watchdog group, filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission accusing newly elected Representative George Santos, Republican of New York, of illegally using campaign funds to pay personal expenses and concealing the source of approximately $700,000. In a statement, the center claimed Santos's 2022 campaign committee engaged in a straw donor scheme, which illegally transferred funds from unknown individuals or groups to Santos's campaign, disguised as the candidate's income. The scheme allegedly utilized a consulting firm, DeVolder LLC. The CLC questions how Santos was able to lend his campaign $705,000 despite only being worth $55,000 per his 2020 financial disclosure reports. The group suggested that corporations or foreign nationals could have been the source of the money. In addition to the CLC's complaint, Santos is being investigated by federal prosecutors in New York for potential campaign finance violations. Brazilian law enforcement is also reinstating fraud charges against Santos related to a stolen checkbook in 2008. In addition, one of Santos's campaign staffers has been accused of impersonating GOP leader Kevin McCarthy's chief of staff in order to solicit donations from wealthy GOP donors. Santos's lawyers said the staffer Sam Miele was let go about a year ago. 
Representatives Richie Torres, Democrat of New York, and Dan Goldman, Democrat of New York, have filed a House Ethics Committee complaint against Santos for failing to properly disclose and complete financial reports. They cite Santos's well-publicized scandal regarding lies he told about his resume and background. All right, Melissa, thanks for that update. We have a Democratic narrative on this story from Salon.com. Santos's lies have crossed the line from unethical to criminal, and he must be investigated by the Federal Election Commission. It's miraculous how a failed congressional candidate with only $50,000 in 2020 was able to loan his 2022 campaign $705,000. All signs point to a violation of campaign finance laws. And here's the Republican narrative from Fox Business. Democrats have absolutely no leg to stand on when it comes to campaign finance violations and shady money-switching hands. They took millions of dollars from former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, who has led one of the most notorious cons in American history. Democrats are the ones who need to be investigated, and their fixation on Representative Santos is ironic at best. He's just a weasel. I, I mean, the thing is, I I feel like I know people like that, not on this level, but like people I've worked yeah. with before. It's like, you're such a piece of shit. And you know that oh, I yeah. know you're a piece of shit. That's yeah. the thing. But you don't care because it's working. Whatever you're doing right. you're done. is just working stay away from somehow. Me. But I can't deal with you. I just can't. I can't. Yeah. Ugh. The U.N. Security Council votes to extend its cross-border aid to northwest Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, the Associated Press, and Yahoo News. The U.N. Security Council has unanimously voted to maintain a cross-border mechanism that allows humanitarian aid to be delivered from Turkey to the rebel-held northwestern Syrian region of Idlib, which U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called an indispensable lifeline for 4.1 million people. The resolution extends critical aid deliveries for another six months. Since Syria's government has not agreed to the humanitarian operation, authorization from the U.N.'s highest decision body was required to continue the shipments to opposition-controlled areas, which began in 2014. Authorization for the operation was set to expire after a previous six-month extension was approved last July. Ireland and Norway drafted the current agreement before the end of the nation's two-year terms on the Council on December 31st. Russia's vote was highly anticipated as it is an ally of Syria and has previously abstained or vetoed resolutions on cross-border aid deliveries. In a surprise move, Moscow supported the scheme's continuation. Russia's U.N. Ambassador Vasily Nebenzia said supporting the resolution was difficult, as northwest Syria was inundated with terrorists. He reaffirmed, however, that Russia remains committed to its principled position that cross-border aid delivery should be temporary and should eventually be replaced by Syrian government-controlled deliveries. On Sunday, a convoy of 18 trucks delivered important humanitarian supplies through government-held front lines to Idlib. Syria's last rebel stronghold. Turkey heavily backed Syrian rebels in the war's first years. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll begin the spins with a pro-establishment narrative from Foreign Affairs. 
While crisis has been temporarily averted in Syria, Western countries should have pushed to extend humanitarian aid to the country for at least a year to avoid allowing nations like Russia to weaponize relief efforts. Putin and Assad are trying to exercise diplomatic legitimacy for their oppressive regimes, and they should not be allowed to interfere with life-or-death aid. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the permanent mission of the Russian Federation to the United Nations. Syria's government should be sovereign and the primary provider of aid to the Syrian people. Western countries care very little about the needs of ordinary citizens and use aid to exercise influence over other countries' governments. This is evident in the fact that the majority of aid is going to Idlib, while only 35% goes to areas where most Syrians live. The U.S. Navy seizes Yemen-bound assault rifles. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, and the Associated Press. The U.S. announced on Tuesday the seizure of over 2,100 assault rifles on a ship in the Gulf of Oman, believed to have come from Iran and bound for Yemen's Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. The Bahrain-based U.S. Navy 5th Fleet discovered the cargo Friday on a small wooden boat crewed by Yemeni nationals off the coast of Oman. The Yemeni crew will reportedly be repatriated back to a government-controlled part of Yemen. The weapons appear to be Chinese-made T-56 rifles and Russian-made Malat AKS-20Us, according to experts who examined photos released by the Navy. Similar weapons suspected to be from Iran and headed to Yemen have previously been seized. Last month, the U.S. Navy claimed to have captured one million rounds of ammunition, rocket fuses, and propellant on a fishing vessel traveling to Yemen from Iran. In November, the Navy also said it found 70 tons of missile fuel allegedly being smuggled from Iran to Yemen. A U.N. arms embargo prohibited weapons transfers to the Houthis in 2014 when Yemen's civil war erupted. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the U.S. Department of State. The ongoing illegal flow of weapons to Yemen is causing significant suffering for innocent civilians. International negotiators are working hard to find a political solution to the war. The most recent seizure of Iranian weapons is just one more example demonstrating that Iran is continuing to arm the Houthis and disregard peacemaking processes. And here's the establishment critical narrative from Inkstick Media. Washington's role in the influx of weapons in the conflict, and by extension, its role in the country's crisis, can't be overlooked. As it hypocritically denounces Iran's suspected supply of weapons, the U.S. itself is heavily arming Saudi Arabia in the hopes of cozying up with the oil-rich nation, and innocent civilians are paying the price. The U.K.'s historic satellite launch fails to reach orbit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Telegraph, FT, The Guardian, Sky News, and Reuters. The UK's attempt to launch the first European satellites into space failed after an anomaly prevented the object from reaching orbit. The UK government and Virgin Orbit, among other involved parties, say they will investigate the problem. Thousands of onlookers gathered in Cornwall to watch the Launcher 1 take off, but began dispersing when news circulated that the rocket, which was strapped to a repurposed Boeing 747, had encountered difficulties. It was expected to burn up on re-entry with all of the nine satellites on board being destroyed. 
in addition to causing Virgin Orbit's share price to decline by more than 20% following the incident. The failed launch dented the UK's ambition to become Europe's top provider of launch services. Other competitors include Norway and Sweden. Satellites on board the rocket belong to various organizations, including the UK's Ministry of Defense, the Sultanate of Oman, and the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office, as well as British startups, including Spaceforge. The U.K. Space Agency's Matt Archer said the failure was obviously disappointing, but added that the group knew this had a risk of failure. Space launches don't always work, he continued. The rocket failed as it reached its second stage in which the satellites would have been deployed. The U.K.'s business minister, Grant Shapp, said on Tuesday that another attempt will follow. Britain's government invested roughly 20 million pounds, or 24 million American dollars, in the spaceport and launch. Thank you, Scott. We'll start these spins with a pro-establishment narrative from the BBC. Rocket technology is immensely complicated, and although this result is disappointing, those involved will likely embark on another mission very soon. These launches are difficult, but one setback will not deter researchers from making further progress in the near future. There is no need to feel ashamed over this result. And The Spectator brings us an establishment critical narrative. This failure has left multiple senior members of the UK government with egg on their faces. By trumpeting the success of the mission before it was guaranteed, Freeman and Shapps have embarrassed the upper echelons of government by appearing to utilize this launch as a public relations stunt rather than an advance for the sake of scientific progress. And we have a nerd narrative on this story from the folks at Metaculus. There is a 50% chance that a fifth nation will launch a person into space by July of 2030. Every time I see a story like this, and, and I haven't really thought about the fact that England has never you know, sent a rocket up into space or things like that. It only makes it more amazing what the United States and the USSR were doing in, in the middle of last century. It is pretty incredible, isn't it? And, you know, I, maybe the rest of the world thought, well, those two have got it under control. England has such like a nautical heritage. Mm. Uh, you know, like they were the ruler of the seas for so many years. I feel like sure. there's room for them. Okay, we, we were the rulers of the sea. Let's be the rulers of space. It's just, it's not working. It's not, it's not working. Yeah, no. A U.S. safety agency is considering banning gas stoves. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NBC, The New York Post, and CBS. Richard Trumka, Jr., a U.S. Consumer Products Safety Commissioner, has called gas stoves a hidden hazard in an interview with Bloomberg. The agency is considering banning the cooking appliances, which are a source of indoor pollution believed to be linked to asthma. Trumpka said all options should be considered and added products that can't be made safe can be banned. No official proposal has been presented, and any regulation would require a lengthy process. The CPSC has been mulling the effects of gas stoves for months. In October, Trumpka recommended the agency seek public comments on hazards related to them. The CPSC could also implement emission standards instead of a ban. Reports from the American Chemical Society and New York University Law School's Institute for Policy Integrity found that gas stoves emit pollutants including nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, and fine matter at unsafe levels. In December, the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health 
attributed 12% of childhood asthma cases to gas stoves. In December, federal lawmakers wrote a letter to CPSC Chairman Alexander Hohn-Sarek warning about some of the hazards of gas stoves and how they disproportionately affect Black and Latino communities. The Association for Home Appliance Manufacturers responded to the potential ban by saying that consumers can take simple steps to mitigate harmful emissions. Around 40% of U.S. homes rely on gas stoves, and many users prefer gas to other types of stoves. All right. Thanks for that interesting story, Melissa. We have a Democratic narrative from Washington Post. Evidence shows that gas stoves cause unnecessary illness and accelerate climate change, and every attempt to rid American homes of them should be made. Alternatives can be expensive, but the Inflation Reduction Act provides low- and moderate-income homes with cash incentives to switch. Public health should trump preference in most cases, including this one. Here's the Republican narrative from the post-millennial. The Biden administration is attacking American energy yet again, and the battle is headed to a kitchen near you. The CPSC cites very suspect studies to create a causation between gas stoves and asthma. And of course, climate change is always a driving force of Democrats' government tyranny. Gas stoves are just better than electric ones, and Americans should be free to choose their own type of cooker. Do you know who Adam Ragusea is, the YouTube chef? No. He's kind of like a science-based chef, kind of home cook, but with like a mathematical kind of logic-based attitude. And he did a whole video on gas stoves, their efficacy and their difference Mm. between that and electric stoves. And there's something called induction stoves now, which are like powered by magnets, which are really cool. One of the things he talked about was in the case of a gas stove, just because it's putting out that much heat doesn't mean that's what's going into your pan. It has to get that fire. You know, if you hold your hand near a gas burner to the side, like you can feel that heat coming out to the side or not making right. it to the pan or, you know, getting blown up in the air or whatever. And uh, so he was saying you have to measure how much mm. energy goes into the pan, not just the amount of fire that comes out of the thing. And, and that kind of changed the equation. It was a very interesting video. If anyone's interested, Adam Ragusea's YouTube channel. I'm sure, sure if you search you know, Adam Ragusi, a gas stove, but. So he was saying that um, because people are claiming that it's fast. Yeah, it's faster or better. Yeah. It's not as, it's not as efficient as you think because not all the The energy is is, is going into the pan. Whereas if you have your pan directly on an induction burner or directly on an electric burner, much more of that heat goes straight into the pan. Right. Our final story, a U.N. report claims the ozone layer will completely heal by 2066. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Independent, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, Al Jazeera, the Daily Mail, and the Associated Press. According to a U.N. report released Monday, the giant hole in Earth's ozone layer over Antarctica could fully heal by 2066. The news comes after the last assessment of recovery progress made four years ago found only slight and preliminary signs of healing. Though healing is slow, the report shows the protective layer of the upper atmosphere, which has a global average thickness of 18 miles, could be back to the pre-thinning levels seen in 1980 in about 43 years. The publication further suggests that the ozone hole above the Arctic may be fully healed by 2045. 
Developed countries agreed to reduce production of primary ozone-depleting substances in 1987 with the signing of the Montreal Protocol. Substances including hydrochlorofluorocarbons, or HCFCs, and chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, were phased out of use in subsequent years due to concern over the ozone layer. More recently, the 2016 Kigali Amendment banned HFCs, potent ozone-depleting greenhouse gases known to damage Earth's climate. The report claims that, since the Montreal Protocol, levels of chief ozone-eating chemicals, chlorine and bromine, have declined by 11.5% from their peak in 1993 and 14.5% since their peak in 1999. The United Nations Environment Program Director Inger Anderson has pointed out the positive impacts this progress has on human health, estimating that cooperative action helping heal the ozone layer protects roughly 2 million people every year from developing skin cancer. Despite this progress, however, scientists have warned that solar geoengineering, designed to combat global warming, as well as efforts to artificially cool the planet through stratospheric aerosol injection, risk thinning the ozone layer by as much as 20% over Antarctica if enacted. Thank you for that interesting story, Scott. We'll start our final round of spins with Narrative A from the conversation. Evidence of the efficacy the world's coordinated response is having to tackle the ozone crisis is inspiring, and scientists should celebrate this continued trend of ecological progress. Furthermore, as the shrinking ozone hole illustrates, nations can solve climate change issues if they come together. The world is capable of uniting to reduce fossil fuel usage and tackling pollution if it uses the successful Montreal Protocol model employed to minimize ozone-depleting substances. And Narrative B comes from The Guardian. These results are certainly testament to the success of the Montreal Protocol, but the broader future of Earth's climate is not so certain. CFCs were only produced by a handful of companies, so it was relatively easy to reduce their production. Fossil fuels, on the other hand, which pose the much greater issue, are more widespread and have greater longevity in our atmosphere. The reality of the much more significant environmental challenge facing scientists, politicians, and the population at large when it comes to climate change is sobering. And the nerds have the last word again, Scott, saying there is a 50% chance that global CO2 emissions will peak by September 22 of 2037. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. You're a child of the 90s. You remember all that, you know, I feel like the ozone layer, acid rain, stuff like that. Like that was oh, most yeah. of our childhoods. Oh, yeah. Like, stop. You got to stop using aerosol hairspray. Uh, one thing it is, they mentioned it in the article, and I was going to mention it if they didn't. And I'll mention it again anyway, is that we got off CFCs and went to HFCs, and it turns out those were way worse. Um, uh, that all that kind of thing is, you know, if Edgar Allan Poe was going to like write a story about us trying to fix the climate, that's what it would be, I feel like. Yeah, just trading in one demon for another. For a way worse one, yeah. Yeah. I feel, and and I, it makes me wonder, what are we doing now that's way worse than before? Um, Making a bunch of batteries in cars that might have to be dumped into the ocean. Yeah, clear-cutting a bunch of forests to find more lithium for these batteries and then throwing them in the ocean shortly thereafter. That's probably it. Yeah, that might be it. Now let's ask <laughs> Mr. Poe. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. 
Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.